Hello, and welcome to Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Before we begin, we wish to note that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now, I'm pleased to introduce Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner and partner Bethany Abley to kick off our podcast. Welcome. I'm Mike O'Donnell. And I think if you've listened to any of the six prior Title Nerds podcast, I am the co-manager partner Riker Danzig and the moderator of this Title Nerds podcast, along with my partner, Bethany Abley. And welcome to the seventh podcast of Title Nerds. We are very honored today to have Judge Travis Francis, who is with our firm as of counsel and had a very long and distinguished career on the bench in New Jersey. And also we have Kevin Hackinson, who is one of our members of our title insurance team, and he will discuss the case of the week. But for now, I will turn that over to my partner, Bethany Abley, and she will interview Judge Francis. Thanks, Mike. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to our Title Nerds podcast. And as Mike said, we are so pleased this morning to have Judge Travis Francis with us. And we are so lucky to have Judge Francis at the firm with us. As Mike said, Judge Francis has had a long, distinguished career on the bench. If I'm not mistaken, Judge, I think you joined the bench in 1992. Do I have that right? That's correct. That's exactly right. And thank you for the invite. And it's my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. It's so great to have you here. And Everyone should know Judge Francis was the assignment judge of Middlesex County and also had previously served as the presiding judge of the Chancery Division. And I think if you're a title nerd, you probably know we're often in Chancery. So Judge, welcome. Thank you again for being here. And the first thing I wanted to have you do is tell us a little bit about what you do for the firm now. Let our listeners know what you're doing currently in your current practice. Well, currently I'm doing mediations, arbitrations. Discovery master work, tremendous amount of, of discovery master work, and providing, hopefully, wise and judicious counsel to those associates and or partners that are appearing before the various tribunals in New Jersey and giving them the benefit of my advice. But primarily in the commercial litigation space, as part of the commercial litigation group, I'm doing what I previously described. Great. Thank you. And everybody, please keep in mind, Judge Francis is here and doing that type of work. So if you have a need for a special discovery master or mediator or whatnot, please keep Judge Francis in mind. And Thank you very much for that, Bethany. I appreciate it. Of course. And we just wanted to talk to you a little bit this morning about some of your experience that you might have had either with cases in the title insurance industry or real estate cases, property cases while you were on the bench. Were there any interesting cases in this realm that you had when you were on the bench that you could share with us? Sure. Well, I'm sure you're aware and your listeners are that quiet title actions appear in general equity in the form of applications for partitions, ejectments, easements, property line and border disputes, surveyor errors, and adverse possession, to name a few. The concept of specific performance often arises in general equity. And I have to tell you, the first specific performance case I got 
harkened me back to law school because it was the <laughs> it was a it was a concept we learned, but I, I really never understood how it would present itself in a court of law. And usually they arose with respect to a real estate transaction, as I'm sure you're aware. Some of the more interesting cases that I had, and I've been off the bench for a while, so I don't remember all of the specifics of the cases, were cases involving adverse possession. As you know, adverse possession is governed by statute, and depending on the state of the property, it's governed by either a 20-year or 30-year period of open and notorious possession. I'm not, I won't get into the weeds of, of that because I'm presuming your listeners know what that's all about. There was a particular case involving a farmer who had property that was contiguous to property owned by a large corporate entity. It may have been a utility company. That's what come to mind, but I, I don't remember specifically who it was. And the question was whether or not the farmer who was claiming a significant portion of this property by adverse possession had been acting open and notoriously. And the best evidence that was presented was that the farmer had actually constructed a fence around this area that belonged to the corporate entity and was growing crops on it. But one, he had not met the time frame. But when the case was heard, it was very interesting because part of the testimony was not only did I construct this fence, I was growing crops. And at times when I saw some of their people out there in their Jeeps or off-road vehicles, I would even give them some of my crops. So they clearly <laughs> knew what I was doing. Well, notwithstanding that, I'm sure you can imagine how the case went, farmer lost. But that was one of the more interesting cases that I encountered while the chancellor in Middlesex County. The majority of the cases, though, were surveyor errors, you know, property line disputes, and pretty straightforward cases. But of the cases that you hear in general equity, other than some of the corporate divorces, as I characterize them, these title cases were quite interesting, fact-wise. I mean, the law is pretty clear in most of the cases. Judge, I will tell you, Bethany and I have had cases where we've actually gotten garden vegetables as well. I had one in the Lake communities where uh, my client had a garden and gave me his olive oil. And, and I had another in, in Atlantic City where the client didn't have a garden, but he gave me a frozen turkey to thank me. So, <laughs> Well, Mike, when Judge Francis was telling us about the adverse possession cases and he said, I won't get into the weeds. I was thinking of a different war story that we have on adverse possession when you and I met with our client and we were in suits. And afterwards we said, let's go look at the property. And in our suits on a snowy day, much like today, you and I in our suits literally went into the trees and bushes and hid in the bushes to examine the property. We were standing on our client's land. We weren't you know, trespassing or anything, but Mike and I were, like I said, in our suits in the snow examining the land to see what of the adverse possession elements might be present or not. So we definitely have experience with that, Judge Francis, and no adverse possession well and no boundary line disputes pretty <laughs> pretty well as, as well. From a factual perspective, they are very interesting cases. And I think there may have been one or two cases where I actually went out to inspect or look at the property. 
You guys also had a case. I'm sure you've talked about it on one of your prior podcasts where the appellate division reversed the lower court with respect to holding an evidentiary hearing to determine whether the statute of limitations should be told where plaintiffs alleged that the defendant defrauded them out of title to a property over 20 years earlier. The Benipal case, do you recall that? I think you guys were involved in that case. The parties had agreed that the title would be in the name of a jointly owned entity. Defendant titled the property in the name of a company that clearly was not the jointly owned entity, but it was an entity that he owned individually. And yeah, I think it may have been a gas station. And he led the plaintiffs to believe that the jointly owned entity owned the property, when in fact, like I said, it was not in the name of the jointly owned entity. The defendant moved to dismiss, arguing that the statute of limitations on the claims had run. And in opposition, plaintiffs argued that the limitations period should be told until the time that they had discovered the issue. So almost similar to a med-mal, where the discovery rule sort of comes into play. The trial court granted the defendant's motion and held that under the recording statute, and this was the interesting part of the case, under the recording statute, a recording deed put all interested parties on constructive notice that the joint entity did not own the property, and therefore the limitations period should not be told. But interestingly, on appeal, the appellate division reversed, and they found that the recording statute cited by the trial court only stated that, and I'll quote it, any recorded document affecting the title to real property is from the time of recording notice to all, for emphasis added, subsequent purchasers, mortgagees and judgment creditors, et cetera, and thus has questionable applicability under the facts of that case. They cited 42-26A12A. Additionally, the court held that discovery was needed as to plaintiff's failure to discover the true owner of the property for over 20 years, but that despite plaintiff's obvious complacency over the years, it is not clear on the record, that is the record before them, that even a prudent investor would have uncovered concealment of the property's true ownership. So they reversed the trial court and obviously felt that under the facts of that case, the timeframes associated with the statute of limitations should be told. And I thought that was an interesting, for some reason, I thought you guys were involved in that case. I may be wrong. Judge, we'd love to claim credit for it, but it's not familiar to me, <laughs> okay. Okay. to be honest. And we always hearken to the 30-year statute of limitations under the J&M decision that cleared up that 20 to 30-year difference. But it sounds like a great case, and it sounds like a case that was probably decided rightly as far as prior and right, right. property. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it sounds yeah, like a very yeah. interesting case. So, Judge, do you have any advice for our listeners who either might be litigants in these type of cases or practitioners who are representing oh. litigants in these cases? Any ways they should be presenting their case to the Chancery Division? Any advice from your time on the bench that you can share with us? Well, yeah, I'm sure that your, particularly the practitioners who are listening, 
know how to get to general equity by way of filing an order to show cause. If they're looking for some form of preliminary uh, injunctive relief, clearly that order to show cause must be accompanied by a verified complaint. They obviously have to establish some form of irreparable harm. And in property cases, that's usually not too difficult to do. From a practice point, if you're going to go in on an order to show cause, I would suggest, and I usually recommended it when I would speak to counsel, either at a bar association function or an ICAL event, call the court and give the court a heads up with respect to what's coming. Call the judge's law clerk or judge's secretary and just let the judge know what you're coming in for. Generally speaking, what type of relief that you're asking for. I know now everything is filed on e-courts. When I retired, e-courts was primarily, I think, in civil and maybe family. But I know it's much broader now. But the court will appreciate that because remember, if you're coming in on an order to show cause, you're really seeking emergent relief. And you are asking the court to interrupt their planned schedule for a given day in order to hear your application. So as much notice as you can give the court would be much, much appreciated. And unless you are making an ex parte application, which I won't say that they're unusual, but it's rare that a court only wants to hear from one side. So unless you're making an ex parte application, make sure everyone that is going to be on the other side of the application has a copy of your pleadings so that you can make that representation to the court. And if you want to be heard within a 24-hour period, I think that you increase your probabilities if you advise the court. Everyone has my papers. So no one is surprised. And so, Judge, if you want to get us in, now I guess everything's being done by Zoom. So you're probably getting appearances a little quicker than you would if you actually had to drive to the courthouse. But let the court know that everyone has your papers and therefore there are no surprises. And I think that in most cases, the judge and or the clerk or the judge's secretary will get you before the judge sooner than later. Thank you, Judge. I think that's very helpful advice. I definitely think that's something that we need to make sure that our people know and that everybody out there, our listeners should know. I yeah, think that's, that's great advice. Thank you. Are there any issues, and I'm talking now practical issues that you guys encounter, and I'm asking you as the host, but you're representing a much larger group of practitioners that you encounter when you get into court that I might address that's problematic? It's a good oh, question. Oh, I take the silence as no. a no. No, let me, let me, since I'm the untactful one, Judge, let me ask this question. How do you tactfully address a situation where you filed a motion for relief and it relates to a property? It's got to get decided. But, you know, there is some time, but the delay is really dragging on your clients. How do you tactfully sort of prompt the trial judge to make a decision? You know, and we all know they're busy. We all know they're overwhelmed. But, but sometimes the delay is sort of epitomizes the statement, justice delayed. Justice delayed is justice denied. Justice denied. New Jersey is a great court system. It doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while, 
we run into that issue and we attribute it to the fault of the volume of the docket. But how do you get around that? Yeah, you know, Mike, that's a very good question. I do a New Jersey civil practice boot camp for PLI every year. And that question always comes up. (laughs) And I think the most tactful way to do it, because I hear what you're saying, and I also hear what you're not saying. The most tactful way to do it is to simply always just make the soft inquiry, such as I would reach out to either the secretary, the point of contact would be the secretary or the law clerk, depending on the chambers. I mean, some judges, their secretary, who's sort of serving as the clearinghouse for all information getting to the judge. Some judges are interfacing equally with their secretaries and with their law clerks. But I would make a very soft inquiry with one or the other and simply ask, is there anything else that we can provide to the court that might be of assistance with regard to Jones versus Smith? And I think what that will do is at least get the matter looked at. In some cases, the issues might be so thorny and so knotty that the court really does need an extended period of time before rendering a decision. And I understand that on the other side, you know, you've got a client saying, look, my case is the only case in this courthouse. Why haven't they decided it yet? Okay. But I think that's the most tactful way to do it. Because what you want to avoid is being the firm or the attorney that's calling every day. I'd put it on a calendar, though. I would put it, you know, if when you file the application, this is sort of a preemptive move. When you file the application after oral arguments, after you've submitted, if they have been solicited, your proposed finding of facts and conclusions of law, ask the judge, judge, can you give me, for purposes of my client, can you give me an idea of when we might get a decision? And if the judge gives you even a general range, let that time come if you haven't gotten the decision. And maybe two or three days later, I would make my inquiry. I understand you want to be tactful and respectful, and you should. But Mike, that's how I would suggest you do that. I would not have no contact, though. That I would not do. I wouldn't call every day. But if you called on Monday and you still haven't received anything by the following Monday, I might follow up. Probably then I'm following up strictly with the law clerk. Because often the workload is a determining factor in terms of you know, what decisions are getting out in more of an expedited fashion. Bethany, did you have one for the judge? Because I just have one more sort of issue that no, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, though, Mike, because that is something that we come into quite frequently. We, we confront ourselves or I guess we're confronted with that issue quite frequently. So that's very helpful, Judge. Thank you. Good. The second question I thought of, Judge, is particularly applicable to title nerds. We do cases that where we have to chase chain a title back to the 1800s. To us, it's absolutely fascinating. (laughs) But I just had to listen to one decision being read from the bench via phone, and my wife was by my side. And I was so excited, and I saw her eyes glaze over, and I (laughs) I put it on mute and said, go to breakfast, dear. How can we as litigators make these issues of tracing property back to the 1820s or or these adverse possession cases that you're talking about at the farm? How can we make them sort of interesting and put the presentations 
on best to the jurors because while in New Jersey, all property cases like these issues usually in chancery division, I realize judges are people and you got to make interesting and understandable to the court. So could you give our listeners some advice as to how to do that? How to make what would be to many people uninteresting, interesting. Incredibly dry, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you, I would do it by creative examples. You know what I mean? Sometimes, as you know, I mean, Mike, you're a litigator, and I litigated for years before going to the bench. It's about the story that you're telling. And sometimes you can't tell your story because it will put a jury to sleep, but you can give them examples of what your story is that might be a bit more interesting, lively, just for purposes of comparisons. And even with a judge, I mean, you know, judges are people too, you're right. And in the case of a judge, though, my presumption is that the judge has read your papers and sort of knows, you know, what the issues are before you present your case. Whether you're presenting it in a bench trial or you're presenting it to the jury, the judge knows the case. Litigation is an art, as you know. And part of that art is the ability to tell a story. And I don't care what you're litigating, civil case, criminal case, finders of fact want to hear stories. So if you can present your case, notwithstanding the subject matter and how uninteresting it might be on its face, if you present it in the form of a story, I think you'll find that you'll keep jurors' attention and you'll also keep the judge's attention. Thank you. I think that's all we have for you this morning, Judge, unless, Mike, if you oh. have anything else. This has been um, very helpful. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invite. And this was really fun, I have to tell you. And, Mike, please invite me again. And if there is a specific case or issue that you want to discuss, let me know, and I'll be happy to do that. And if you want me to reach out to some of my other retired colleagues, I would be happy to do that as well if you want to put together some type of panel. So anything I can do to assist with regard to this podcast, which I think is excellent, I think this is a great idea. I don't know what your listener numbers are. I think this is fantastic. Thank you, Judge. And first of all, I think our listener numbers are right now around 25 million, but we're hoping to get to the 30 million by like February. But in all seriousness, <laughs> Good, Mike. I want to thank you for being on. And as you know, I'm a shameless promoter of our firm in this podcast. And again, I will tell our listeners, uh, you've just heard one of the finest judges, while still relatively new, the judge has only been with us three, four years now, That's one of the best time. mediators and discovery masters in the state of New Jersey. And as he and I always say, we are open for business. Thank you very much, Mike. And Bethany, thank you as well. Oh, thank you, Judge. It's our pleasure having you today. Okay. Bye-bye, guys. All right. Thank you, Bethany, for the interview with Judge Francis. That was great. Now we have Kevin Hankinson, who I always struggle properly saying his name. And, you know, fortunately, I think my daughter was far enough away that you guys didn't hear in this podcast a sound that Kevin is quite familiar with, crying baby. I'm actually in Fayetteville, North Carolina, visiting my one-month-old grandson my first one. And Kevin, your baby is now what, three months, two months? She just turned four months, which four is, months. Time you know, flies. Is, Time flies. You're not kidding. You know, I say to my wife every day, it's like, before we know it, she's going to be a year old. So yeah, time is flying. Kevin, 
I said before, one of our title team members who works for Bethany and me, and Kevin talking about the case of the podcast. And Kevin has picked an interesting case dealing with a neighborhood scheme in Princeton, New Jersey. I think the name of the case is Cherry v. Hadadia. And Kevin, tell us a little about the facts of the case. Sure. You're right. It is Cherry v. Hadaya. It's a case from October 2021 in New Jersey. And yeah, it involves a parcel of land in Princeton that at one time originally deeded by number of property owners, I guess, came together to deed a approximately nine acre plot of land to one, you know, now one landowner back in 1928. And the landowner at that time put some restrictions on how that new plot of land could be subdivided. He actually did some subdivision of the property at that time, but in so doing, put some restrictions onto how those had the land in its entirety could be subdivided thereafter. And so, you know, many years go by. There's, as you can imagine, between 1928 and the 2000s, there's some different, you know, deeding of and subdividing of the land that goes on over the years until an eventual transfer of particular portion of that land in 2004, which was the genesis of this controversy. In 2004, it was deeded to the Hadaya family. I believe it was a husband and wife. And one of the issues or, or something that caused some of the issues, I think, in this case is that as part of that 2004 deeding of this particular parcel, the restrictions on subdividing of the land that, you know, back in 1928 was not included as part of the 2004 deed, which eventually caused some issues with the Hadayas were, were looking to do with this land. You talked about the restrictions, and as I recall, and you correct me if I'm wrong, the restrictions were essentially that in 1928, when it was deeded, it was surrounded by a couple streets, and there was one street called Jefferson Road. One of the pivotal issues was there had to be a 100-foot frontage on the street, and it also had to be 200 feet in depth. So these were, you know, these were nice houses. And then on the other street, was the frontage was different, right? It was 75 feet versus 100, right? Exactly. You know, there's a few different streets in this particular neighborhood. And as you can imagine, since 1928, there are some streets now that weren't there at the time. You know, that was an interesting part of the original deed of the land, the restrictions, is that, yes, on Jefferson Road, which is where the property and controversy was, the restriction was, yes, 100 feet of frontage, meaning that the property had to be 100 feet wide on Jefferson Road, whereas there are some other you know, streets and roads in the area, some of which had only a 75-foot requirement, some of which, and I, there was at least one that only had a 50-foot requirement as well. Right. And I think the ideas were the only one on Jefferson Street. And initially, when they got it in 2004, they subdivided it into two lots. And then in 2008, they subdivided further but they didn't record the deed to 2014. And when they did that further subdivision, one of the lots was only 42.5 feet, right? Exactly. And correct me, but I think that was the nub of the issue for, at the case for the trial judge in the appellate division. And can you tell us, you know, what was the holding with regard to the neighborhood scheme and how the frontage played out in Judge Innes' decision and then the appellate division's affirmance of Judge Innes? Sure. So I agree with you that it seems like that the second subdivision, where initially they had subdivided the land into two parcels, so one and two, let's call it, and then they looked to subdivide into basically one and 2.1 and 2.2. And 
that was really, I think, when this litigation ensued was when these neighbors saw that, oh, they're subdividing this land again. I'm sure they didn't use those exact words, but yeah, that was where this basically came up. And the holding of the trial judge was the plaintiffs who brought this case basically looked to nullify both of the subdivisions, the, the original subdivision and the secondary subdivision. The trial judge found for the plaintiffs, basically finding that the subdivisions of this property violated the scheme set forth by the original deed and you know, rejecting all of the arguments that defendant had made to suggest that the subdivisions that they had done were in conformance of those original restrictions. Right. And the thing I found interesting about Judge Ennis's decision also was really two things. One, he also denied some of the plaintiff's claims because there was a group of plaintiffs and there was one group that were found have standing. And who was that, Kevin? Can you tell us? Yeah. So I don't recall their names, but there were a couple of plaintiffs who owned land you know, that was in this neighborhood. But I believe at least some portion of their land was not part of the original you know, nine or so acres that was part of the original conveyance. So the court had found that those particular plaintiffs did not have standing to bring this claim, and those plaintiffs were dismissed from the action. Interestingly, there was some debate as to the remaining plaintiffs too, which was Cherry, who's obviously, whose name is on the decision. And then there was a second plaintiff named Bessler, who again, their claim survived into the action itself. One thing that I thought was interesting about those plaintiffs as well is that their property was actually eventually on a street that didn't exist at the time. So it was within these nine acres, but it was on a new street. I want to say it was called Dempsey Road, which didn't exist at the time. So there was a decision for the court to make around their standing as well. And basically they decided these plaintiffs, their property is within the land that was originally part of these restrictions. And while it is on a street that wasn't mentioned in those original restrictions, it's generally what was done with this land is in conformance with the other restrictions that have been set forth and as such part of the neighborhood scheme. I found that interesting as well. Pretty insightful by Judge Ennis to note that to enforce the scheme, you should be in a chain of title. I think the court also said that almost all the successors in title had followed the scheme with regard to frontage. It did note there were some deviations with regard to setbacks, where complete uniformity is not necessary to enforce a neighborhood scheme. And also, I think Cherry, basically, for the sake of her argument, conceded that she was part of the neighborhood scheme. So her lawyer obviously knew what he was doing. What did the appellate division do? It's an interesting decision because the appellate division spends most of its time recounting the decision of the trial judge and spends a pretty short amount of time at the end basically agreeing with everything that the trial court did. Did not find the arguments that the defendant was making with regard to saying that it was within conformance of the neighborhood scheme was, I think they used the word strain, that they trying to argue that, oh, these restrictions would only apply to the entire original parcel of land. They found that there was not any merit to that argument. And again, I think that they paid credence to Judge Innes's quote that you mentioned, that complete uniformity was not required in this neighborhood to mean that the neighborhood scheme should be enforced. In other words, the fact that the frontage requirements on Jefferson are 100 feet, 75 feet on this street, 50 feet on this street, as long as it was in conformance with what the original deed said, then you were in conformance. That basically, you don't have to have the exact same requirements on every single street to be attempting to create a neighborhood scheme. Right. And they quoted a case called Weinstein v. Schwartz, which I think is sort of 
good for our practitioners to remember when looking at these type of cases where the court says, in addition to the existence of neighborhood scheme enforceable through deed restrictions, and then here's the quote, is a question of fact to be answered not only by the wording of the deeds, but by the surrounding circumstances and acts of the parties. And I think that analysis is what allowed the appellate division to give so much credence to Judge Innes' opinion because he was the finder of fact. Is there anything else, Kevin? No, I think that we hit on most of the interesting facts here. I thought that this was an interesting case because it's one of those property and title-related cases that I thought that the opinion was really well-written and that you could really picture yourself there. As somebody who spent some time in Princeton, I somewhat know the area that they're describing, but I think even outside of that, you can picture what this plot of land looked like. You can picture what the properties look like. You know, if you've ever lived in any sort of neighborhood, you can imagine why people would or would not, I guess, want to enforce these sorts of restrictions. So I thought it was interesting and really well done by the court. All right. Thank you very much, Kevin. And Bethany, as always, thank you for the podcast and all that you do. And that's it for Title Nerds this time. Please stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening today to Title Nerds, presented by Riker Danzig. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at Riker.com. We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds.